Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The laws that protect children from harmful or inappropriate media are creaking with age. In America, it's been nearly 30 years since the Children's Television Act. Now, regulations for a wired world are in the works, but making the internet safe for children is a thornier problem. And this week, Ramadan ends. During the Muslim holy month, families spend many evenings at home, and that makes for lots of television time. In Saudi Arabia, a wildly popular taboo-busting Ramadan series reveals a lot about how the crown prince views the country and how he wants it to be viewed. First up, though. President Donald Trump arrives in Britain today for a state visit that promises to be full of banquets and pageantry. He and his family will spend time with royals and with outgoing Prime Minister Theresa May. They'll crane their necks to see a flyover of historic and modern aircraft, part of the commemoration of D-Day on the South Coast. The invitation for the visit was issued soon after Mr. Trump was elected, but delayed for quite some time. Nearly two million people signed a petition to have the invitation rescinded. And when Mr. Trump came for a short working visit, he was greeted with protests and a giant inflatable depicting him as a baby in a diaper. Donald Trump's not welcome here! That's probably not the worst thing that Donald Trump has been confronted with when he's been out and about in front of, of crowds. That's Anne McElvoy, one of our British politics obsessives. There's also a crowdfunding campaign going around at the moment to get a bigger a baby blimp for this visit. And that's John Priddo, our United States editor. It was a bit small. The feeling was <laughs> last that, that wasn't last quite, one wasn't quite big enough. Trump-sized. It wasn't Trump-sized. John and Anne have kindly dropped into the studio today to talk about Mr. Trump's visit. And what is the big deal about a state visit anyway? So a state visit is top-notch. It's the one you really want and you get to sit down with the Queen, which still seems to count in a confused world. They can be very helpful to a relationship. And I think back to one that I covered after German unification in 1990. A few years later, the German president came on a state visit. I think he was rather honoured to get it so quickly after unification. There'd been some bad blood really around that uh, with the Brits and to an extent with the Allies. And I think it smoothed things over very well. So that's one purpose of it. But then there are those that maybe you might wonder whether it's such a good idea, like the Ceausescu visit, that was the Romanian dictator in the 1980s. And indeed, Vladimir Putin, who got one, though a lot of people didn't think he should. And so what do you think the, that Britain is expecting out of, out of this one? Either you consider yourself a major ally of America or you don't. And as much as Mr. Trump can be a very difficult visitor, he's often gone off script before. Theresa May is a departing prime minister. Going to be one for her memoirs, isn't it, John? It certainly will. And as you say, the relationship between the two countries remains strong, independent of who the leader of either country is at any given time. 
And having John Bolton along around the visit, having those big figures from the defense foreign policy establishment who come with the president travel before, during or after, you could argue that that's where you get your value from this visit. Well, John, what does what does the U.S. want out of this, do you think? One of the things the U.S. wants is for Britain to change its position on Huawei and the use of 5G kit made by Huawei in Britain's networks. It's a position where Britain has defied America. America and Australia both said that they won't be using Huawei kit. Britain's come up with this compromise where it thinks it's able to use Huawei's equipment in a way that will keep its sort of network safe and its communication secure and won't permit Huawei or the Chinese government to have a backdoor into Britain's intelligence agencies. But America is taking a very different approach. And this really matters for Britain and for America, really, because for whatever people say about the special relationship, which typically is something that the Brits set a lot more store by than the Americans, whatever people say about it, it really works when it comes to intelligence sharing. And so there's a risk with this dispute over Huawei that it ends up affecting the intelligence sharing between Britain and America. If it does so, that's very consequential. If I could just jump in on that, I think it's fascinating that Theresa May is receiving Donald Trump when she's already in the departure lounge. We have a conservative leadership contest going on at the moment to replace her as prime minister. And she's absolutely nailed her colours to the mast on a midway. She sees it. She's also rather hawkish on Huawei, which you'd think would suit the Americans. Donald Trump wants Britain to go further. But having already lost her defence secretary over a row about alleged leaking over how to handle Huawei, I think she's going to stick to her guns. And as she's got nothing to lose, that will be quite interesting. There's also an interesting angle here, isn't there, Anne, that both countries say that the Huawei thing is just about security. But actually, in America, Donald Trump has hinted before that, you know, maybe they might let Huawei off in some way if there's a trade deal. And for the Brits as well, clearly, it's about security. But also, Britain doesn't want to really upset China in a post-Brexit world where it's looking to do trade deals, get more favorable trading arrangements with other countries. So there's a lot of other things that are coming in here besides the security. And the other thing I would mention is it's possible for the president to upset all sorts of diplomatic apple carts while he's here. As he landed, he replied to criticism from the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, with tweets denouncing the leadership of the very city that he was arriving in. Well, and and a certain uh, bit of Brexit chaos as well. Is he going to weigh in on that? Yes, he usually doesn't help too much when he does that. I would say whichever side you're on, because he tends to see Brexit as being a sort of British version of Trumpism. And as we know, he also has favourites in the race. And a lot of presidents would keep a bit shum about that, John. But uh, we know that Donald Trump doesn't tend to keep his favourites to himself. I have a very good relationship with Nigel Farage, with many people over there. And uh... Just after he was elected, Nigel Farage came a visit, visited now, runs the Brexit party, which seems to provide the major electoral threat to Theresa May's Conservative Party. So, yeah, he absolutely has favourites. And probably Boris Johnson as the internal candidate who he finds entertaining, who is a Brexiteer. He's balanced a bit, Trump, I think, between the Brexit, in so much as he follows it in detail, between Nigel Farage, who he's campaigned with, but is in the Brexit party, and Boris Johnson, who's determined to remain in the Conservative Party. There's no secret that uh, I think he'd probably prefer Boris to anyone else in the field. But again, does that help or hinder a, a candidate when the person who's supposed to be coming and possibly patting you on the back also get so many other people's backs up. Well, what about what Mr. Trump or, or, or Britain might want to, to chat about in terms of post-Brexit trade? This is significant whether or not Brexit happens 
through a deal or doesn't happen through a deal. If it happens through a deal, Britain still wants to boost its volume of trade with the US. And if it happens without a deal, then that holy grail of a preferential trade deal with the US is absolutely what a lot of Brexiteers have hoped that they could bring home. It's hard enough to do. It's particularly hard when you have a, a president who on trade can be very sticky indeed, even to those that he considers to be allies. So do you think there is absolutely nothing Mr. Trump could do to upset the special relationship? I don't think it has that much to do with who's in the White House. I think it's stronger than that. I think it particularly exists in the realms of foreign policy, military alliance, and intelligence sharing. And I think those things still are very strong. John, thank you very much for that. And Anne, thank you for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Jason. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. In America in the 1980s, public officials worried about what kids were watching on TV. Now, Hordak reveals the most gruesome trap ever. The Horde Slime Pit. The what? The Slime Pit. By 1990, Congress had passed a landmark piece of legislation. The Children's Television Act limited the number of commercials allowed during children's TV and boosted educational programming. Now, in the internet age, far more dubious content is just a tap away. Teens run into white nationalists. To be white is to be a striver, a crusader, an explorer, and a conqueror. Ten-year-olds encounter flat earthers. NASA's not founded in 19, until 1958, so how did everybody in the world know that it was a globe in 1946? They didn't know. They were told. And toddlers happen across violent or pornographic content. In fact, last year, a poll found that 61% of American parents who let their kids watch YouTube reported that the children had seen unsuitable content. But regulation is coming. A sweeping child protection bill for the Internet era might be presented this month in America. Several members of Congress are drafting multiple bills to regulate how the platforms treat children. Gotti Epstein is our media editor. In June, Ed Markey, a senator from Massachusetts, is expected to introduce a sweeping child protection bill called the Kids Act. It would be sort of an updated version of the Children's Television Act of 1990 for the Internet age. It would do things like ban continuous autoplay on video sites for children, ban certain social features, set standards for content, and restrict advertising. And there are restrictions being proposed beyond America's borders. In Britain, there are new child safety rules being proposed. One is called the Age Appropriate Design Code, which would prohibit some features for children designed to keep users hooked. There is already in the works a uh, porn ban where you would have to prove you're 18 or over to access porn sites. Then elsewhere in Brussels, they bar tech giants from garnering data and targeting ads at children without parental permission. And in India, they are also considering rules that would stop the data of anyone under 18 from being collected without parental permission 
And that's part of a much broader, ambitious data privacy bill that's being considered. So it sounds like there's a lot going on in terms of clamping down on this this kind of online content for kids, but it also feels really late in the game. I mean, compared with the way this went down with television in the 1980s, 1990s, how seriously do you think regulators and politicians are taking it? Well, it's very belated. Jim Steyer, who founded Common Sense Media and was involved in the television rules, he has been banging the drum about this for a while. And in fact, in March and April of this year, he went around the halls of Congress, kind of stalking congressmen, telling them they need to regulate the internet platforms. And the response from them shocked him. They said, well, we already did this. You know, we did regulation for television, you know, for Disney Channel, Nickelodeon. And this is referring basically to the Children's Television Act and the subsequent KidVid rules. And he's kind of shaking them metaphorically and telling them the kids aren't watching that stuff anymore. They are watching YouTube, they're on Instagram and Snapchat, and you have to make rules for these platforms. And what he's referring to there is that for years now, there have been scandals almost you know, every few months about children being exposed to inappropriate content online, whether it's violent content or hour-long infomercials or even pedophiles lurking in the comments of videos that feature children. And so what Jim Steyer said to me is, you know, we're changing at warp speed here and they're still talking about Sesame Street. Well, in, in the absence of hard and fast legislation, it's, it's so far been left up to the social media companies and, and platforms themselves. And it doesn't seem like they've been up to the task. Well... Folks like Jim Steyer would say, absolutely not. And I think the evidence reflects that. Most of these scandals have been cases where journalists or activists exposed what was going on, and then the companies react. That's their form of self-regulation. And to people like Jim Steyer, that is basically a joke. So what changes are needed then? What would the rules that would patch this up look like? Senator Markey's planned bill is a great first step, which is basically saying, okay, let's apply the Children's Television Act and KidVid rules to the internet age. But of course, that's not enough because we're in an interactive age, an age where these platforms can collect data from children, even though they're not supposed to. So the rules have to be tougher. And empowering regulators is crucially important. In all of these places I talked about, whether it's in Congress or in the UK or the EU and in India, these provisions are generally coming backed by the power to levy heavy fines, including a small percentage of overall turnover from these companies, which each of them could amount to billions of dollars. And that could mean that they affect a change in behavior. But these platforms always make an argument about scale. If, if this is a problem, it's a big problem. And the platforms always say it's just impossible for us to, to keep across this in a real-time way. Right, but this is a slightly different challenge because they are supposed to not be serving kids under 13 anyways. They say that you're not supposed to have a Facebook account until you're 13, you're not supposed to have a YouTube account until you're 13. And the reality is children are heavy consumers of these platforms, and YouTube knows this and it makes them a lot of money. You know, On YouTube, 17% of views are on children's channels, according to Medea, a consultancy in the UK. And 15% of their gross annual revenues come from advertising on those channels. So that's a significant piece of YouTube's business. And yet, when you talk to YouTube about children using their platform, they say, well, you're not supposed to do it without parental permission. And actually, we have a separate app called YouTube Kids that parents should be putting their kids on. But many people have not heard of YouTube Kids. YouTube has not promoted it heavily. And they know that most of the actual viewing of YouTube happens on the main platform. So they have to promote that heavily. They have to figure out a way to direct kids to more safe versions of their platforms, not just YouTube, but these other companies. 
What about the other direction, though, ensuring that the people who are on, let's call them full-service versions of the platform, are in fact of age? Right. So this is where things get very tricky. In the UK, with the porn law that requires age verification, there are some strategies that are being developed for this. MindGeek, which owns Pornhub and a bunch of other sites, has an age verification system where you get an ID. Once you have that, you can get onto any of these websites and also then pay for things online so that a company like MindGeek can get your money too. So there's a financial incentive there. And supposedly a third party that's not MindGeek stores the information. Now, I don't know whether similar strategies can be deployed for the main tech platforms, but there are people trying to figure out this tech. So there's a company called Super Awesome in the UK that has just announced a product called KidSwitch, which they say can recognize when a child is using a platform with high confidence. But that confidence probably goes way down when you're talking about teenagers. And I think teens are going to be an area where this is just the most difficult thing to figure out. And what about from the legislative end? Do you think, even though if it is belated, lawmakers are now tackling the issue in the right way, these new laws will have have enough teeth? Well, I think history suggests that it will be difficult to implement regulations and enforce them in a way that will significantly alter the behavior of these tech giants. But I think they are at least recognized that this is the challenge that's before them. I do think regulators will have much greater powers going forward. And over time, they may be able to work out deals with the platforms. could be forced legal settlements, could be through heavy fines in years to come that will gradually change how internet platforms serve children. Gotti, thanks very much for your time. It was great to be with you, Jason. For the Arab world, Ramadan, which ends this week, is the biggest month for television. After breaking fasts, families spend hours gathered around the screen. And in a region with little free media, glossy TV shows can provide a glimpse into what governments would like people to think. Greg Karlstrom is The Economist's Cairo correspondent, and he's recently been binging some Saudi TV. If you didn't know the backstory, the 15th episode of Al Asouf would be quite dramatic. It starts off with an ordinary night in Mecca as hundreds of worshippers are walking into the Grand Mosque for prayers. Uh, And then suddenly it turns to pandemonium. Rifles are unpacked that were hidden inside of the mosque and shots are fired. The doors of the mosque are chained shut and the rest of the episode portrays the beginnings of the the two-week siege of Mecca in 1979. But of course, anyone watching in Saudi Arabia this year would know that backstory because this was one of the seminal events in modern Saudi history. And what's the reaction been to the show as a whole? Well, this was one of the most eagerly anticipated shows of the year. It's the second season of a show that is not actually about the siege of Mecca. It's about the transformation of Saudi Arabia in the 1970s. And so the first season, which aired last Ramadan, portrayed a kingdom that is somewhat more open and more tolerant than the Saudi Arabia of today. You see characters who flirt with each other and have affairs and have children out of wedlock and get together in the evenings to drink and dance and do all sorts of things that you would not see normally in a dramatic portrayal of Saudi life these days. And so this one was promoted and advertised by NBC, the broadcaster, 
using these scenes of the siege of Mecca, which has never been portrayed on Saudi television before. So what happened during the, the 1979 siege? Well, it was several years in the making. It was organized by a Saudi man named Juhayman al-Atebi, who was a former member of the Saudi National Guard. When he left in the early 1970s, he began to drift first to religious conservatism and then to religious extremism. Uh, he became angry at what he saw as the decadence of the Saudi royal family and the corruption of the Saudi royal family, uh, and also what he saw as the intrusion of Western culture. This culminated in the siege of Mecca at the end of 1979, when he and several hundred followers had stockpiled weapons inside of the mosque. And they, for the better part of two weeks, uh, fought off attempts by the Saudi security forces to retake the mosque. To say that was an embarrassment for the Saudi royal family would be an understatement. Uh, and so in response, what they did was basically accept the criticism. They moved the kingdom in a much more conservative direction. So cinemas that had existed before 1979 were closed down. Gender segregation became very rigidly enforced in public life. So it, it seems then that the, the, the siege would be a pretty uh, controversial topic to tackle. Why do you think it's on TV now? Well, it's always been a taboo subject in Saudi Arabia. But what's happened over the past few years is Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi crown prince, has been keen to start discussing it. Of course, he's decreed a number of cultural and social changes in Saudi Arabia that reverse what happened in 1979. Women were granted the right to drive last year. Cinemas have started to reopen. And so while all of this is going on, of course, there's concern about backlash because these moves are very unpopular with the Saudi clerical establishment. And so there's been an effort on the part of the crown prince and his allies to talk about 1979 and use it to reframe history, to say, in effect, that authentic Saudi culture is what came before 1979. And in this new telling, after 1979, Saudi culture was warped. And so what Mohammed bin Salman and his allies are trying to say is that we have brought the kingdom back to its original, authentic, more tolerant culture. Al-Asuf, it was not conceived by the Saudi government. No one in the royal family asked NBC to produce this show. But it's airing on a broadcaster that is majority state-owned. And there's no way this show could air without the consent of the royal family. And to your mind, is the Crown Prince's interpretation of history fair, or is that revisionist? Well, if you were writing a dissertation, that wouldn't pass muster. The kingdom was founded as explicitly as an alliance between puritanical clerics and the Al Saud family, the royal family. And so it's always been a much more conservative place than Arab capitals like Cairo or Beirut. And of course, to blame only Islamists and Iran and to ignore the role of the royal family in, in promoting these changes and implementing these changes is a bit of revisionist history. So in that sense, no, it's incorrect. But as politics, it's quite savvy. Well, what do the viewers make of it? The reaction to the show has divided along, I think, pre-existing political lines. You have a lot of young people who I find support the changes that have happened in Saudi Arabia uh, over the past few years. And, and they tend to appreciate the show because they think it portrays a kingdom more like the one they would wish to live in. Criticism, I think, comes from two different sides. On the one hand, you have some older Saudis who say, in fact, this is not the Saudi Arabia that I remember. And then on the other side, you have a clerical establishment that is unhappy about what's happened over the past few years and sees the show as a tool for promoting those changes. Greg, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 
12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.